Welcome back to Coaching Kern in episode 15. We're coming off a great show yesterday with Mark Wiley in Real Voices of the Game. We're back today with our resident experts. I'm Dave D'Agostino with my co-host, America's most beloved sports writer, Kevin Kernan, joined by our veteran scout, longtime baseball man, 45 years plus in the business. We refer to him as Bull. And we have Sal Marinello, our resident performance expert. Guys, welcome back. Good morning, guys. Great hey. to be here. Uh, Bull, give us a little uh, rundown from yesterday. We, I know our audience loved Mark Wiley. I know you have a special relationship with him. How did Mark enjoy the show? He really uh, had a great time. Uh, Mark retired at the end of Instructional League as, uh, <clears throat> as the Colorado Rick Rockies uh, director of pitching, which is not an easy job to, uh, to uh, handle, pi- handle pitching, to get ready to pitch in Colorado. But he did it very well for a lot of years. And we developed talent that got there and learned how to pitch there and be successful. But Mark really, really enjoyed the show yesterday. Um, he loved the, uh, you know, just how how our ability to, you know, work together and t- sit and talk baseball almost in the same way that you do as a player or coach or scout in a clubhouse where you're uh, exchanging stories and uh, ideas about the game. And that's how you learn about the game. So, And that's where we are today in our clubhouse for our audience. Kevin, you're coming off another great article, Jack McKeon, Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Um, talk about that special relationship just a little bit. Well, baseball is all about relationships and, and developing uh, young players. And it's not about that anymore, unfortunately. It's about developing philosophy, uh, you know, speed, exit velo, velo from the mound. And uh, so anyway, in, in a nutshell, first of all, you got to read the article. It's a phenomenal article. Again, I'm very lucky, 45, 40, whatever the hell it is now, 48, whatever. A lot of years in the game, and I know a lot of people, and people trust me, so they talk to me. So the other day I gave Jim a call. Didn't want to bother him because, you know, I know what it's like when it's a couple weeks before the All-Star, I mean the uh, Hall of Fame induction. And, um, and But he, gracious for his time, as always. And, and uh, you know, Bob Costa says best in Jim's book, uh, Good as Gold. You know, nobody tells stories and, and can relate to things like Jim Cott does. So in a nutshell, moving forward, but this is the key to the whole thing. He's 19 years old. Jack McKean sees him in spring training. Jack's a 27-year-old catcher manager in Class C, Missoula. And uh, Jack convinces Jim to come to Class C instead of where he was supposed to go to Class B because Class C is McKean. Class B manager um, is a second baseman. So it's not like now where there's 13 coaches on every team, you know. So you had to have a guy who really knew pitching. Jack knew pitching. He worked with him. But the most important thing was Jim started off one and four. He thinks he's going to get cut. Uh, he has to turn it around. And what does Jack do? He comes out doing a situation where Jim's got the bases loaded. He spits some tobacco juice on his cleats and basically says, figure it out, kid. And uh, and that's what has to happen. And Mark Wiley brought us back to that yesterday. You know, how, how pitchers have to develop and figure things out themselves. And so Jim is going to, at the, at the Hall of Fame, Jim is going to, basically have Jack stand up because he, he, he's, he's, he invited Jack and he's taking care of Jack to go to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And he's going to point out the, the thin line, the thin line be, uh, between making it. If he didn't turn it around, then at one and four, he could have been cut. The thin line between um, 
making it and wow, winding up with a Hall of Fame career. And Jim also did other things real, real quick. Uh, Mark brought it up yesterday. His quick pitch stuff was great. All these pitchers are robots. I do see some teams now, though, uh, letting pitchers be themselves a little bit more, and that's helping things out. So let's not forget that scouts, uh, people understand the game or important to the game. Everything is just not numbers and robots. So, uh, yeah, you'll see that at ball9.com. Enjoy it. Yeah, please read that. That was a great interview um, and a great story as well, as they all are. And uh, Sal, just so our audience knows, Sal Marinello, he's the hardest working man in show business. He comes from a, a client where he's helping somebody perform mentally or physically, hops right into our show, uh, doesn't even get a break. So Sal, welcome back. We're going to start off with you today with the mailbag, if that's okay. Great. Ready so, to go. Okay. So um, taking a look at our audience questions, there's a lot of questions from our audience about these uh, myths, these fitness myths, these nutrition myths. And I thought I'd kind of leave it open for you to see if you could help us debunk some of those general myths that we see out there, whether it's physical fitness myths or nutrition myths for our young athletes out there. Great. That's perfect because that's, you know, most of the problem we contend with, whether you're a, a weekend warrior, gym rat, you know, regular gym goer that really puts time in, um, they're being misled. So it's great to be able to try to, um, you know, dispel some of that nonsense. Yeah. What, what are some, give us some general workout. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know what, um, Dave, the, one of the biggest things, and it's kind of been, it's everyone kind of knows it, but it's also at the same time glossed over is the nutritional component uh, of, of being fit and healthy and not to go off on a whole tangent, but we've been led down the wrong path. Uh, it started in the seventies with the advent of the food pyramid and the low fat diet. You know, I know there's uh, a lot of uh, controversy surrounding Dr. Fauci and his philosophies and what he's done since he's basically been in charge of, you know, of America's health. Before Fauci, there was a man named Ansel Keys who was, um, was instrumental in coming out with this low-fat diet. And it was an agenda-driven effort from the beginning, not to get too deep in the weeds, but I'll leave it at that. And what he did was he was in charge of this uh this study that's been famously pushed as the seven nations study, which basically said that the countries that ate less saturated fat had less incidence of heart disease. The problem was when the uh, study began, it was about 40 nations. And what he did was cherry picked data from uh, seven or eight countries that had both food shortage issues and um, post-World War II timeframe. So basically what he did was develop this philosophy based on a cherry-picked group of uh, studies. And that leads us to today, Dave, where we have this low-fat mentality, where even when you read articles about eating protein, they always mention lean protein. Um, actually, saturated fat and other fatty proteins are the real superfoods in our diet. And it doesn't make the vegan, vegetarian, uh, radical wing of our society happen happy. But the bottom line is, our healthiest foods are um, high fat, high saturated fat foods such as beef. And of course, salmon was also very high in, in the, in the uh, good fats. Now, this isn't to say you go out and eat fried chicken. That's not what this is about. But this is about eating natural, um, properly raised, and even to the most part, commercially raised beef is okay. It's not okay. It's better than okay. So that's the first part, that low fat is the way to go. The second part is because of this low fat mentality, people don't get enough protein. 
And uh, I'll leave it at that. But I, what I will say is athletes have no idea how much protein they should be getting. And in my experience, pro, uh, athletes are usually getting about 50% of the protein they need. Where do they get protein from, Sal? Well, I mean, if you're on this kick of low fat, you're getting uh, protein in your diet. The thing, the, the other positive, one of the, not the other, one of the many positive aspects of fat is it satiates you. In other words, you feel full. So if you were to eat, say, a skinless, boneless chicken breast, you may get a, a, nice, uh, a nice load of protein. The problem is without the fat, you're hungry. So when you're hungry and the way most people have been taught to eat, you go to the things that fill you up, that maybe satisfy you, which for the short term would be a pasta or a starch or a potato. Uh, but then after that, you get your uh, higher fat stuff that is also high in carbohydrates, which a lot of times are these processed, a lot of times are vegan, vegetarian, high fat, high sugar, high carb. So that's where we run into the problem. Sal, Kevin, what about you... bugs, Sal? What about bugs? That's uh, you know new... what, Kevin? Bugs, <laughs> that's, the, that's the, and I'm glad you saw that, uh, uh, brought that up. I saw that yesterday. This is just more nonsense by the overlords, and not to sound crazy, but they're trying to convince you to eat bugs where never, you know, in our history have we eaten bugs. And again, not to go off on a deep end, there's a great book everyone should listen to. It's called Sacred Cow. Joe Rogan had the authors on his show. And they go into chapter and verse how proper um, cattle farming not only isn't um, bad for the environment, it's actually a positive to the environment as opposed to these other fake proteins they're trying to push on us. Well, Sal, you make me feel happy that I had steaks, a big steak last night. And, uh, uh, you know, now that I'm 69, I've always watched, uh, you know, I kind of watch what I eat the last 20 years, but I'm enjoying my steaks more than ever. And uh, actually, it came from a company called Good Ranchers that I really, uh, you know, they get mailed to us and uh, pretty awesome. And uh, I'm not eating bugs. And if steaks go away, then, uh, then I'm going to get my own cow and cut it up. Well, and, you know, it goes back, uh, Dave made the point of, um, or brought up the point about um, myths. And not only is meat, beef good for you, they know now that obviously eating fat does not raise your cholesterol and does not make you fat. They've done actual controlled studies, not these um, studies where they survey people's habits, where they put people on a diet, know what they ate, measure what they, uh, what their outcomes are. Eating more uh, saturated fat does not raise your cholesterol. Also, there are ma many, many legitimate studies that have been done that show the, high, uh, the lower the cholesterol, the higher the all-cause mortality, and the higher the incidence of heart disease. So there's a million places you could go to find that info, just not from the government or from so-called public health officials. Nice. That was well stated, Sal. That's that's uh, and the, 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 I guess the resources Sal mentioned, Sacred Cow. I have I have read that, and Kevin, I'm on board with you with Good Ranchers. In fact, I put a tweet out there yesterday saying we need to get them as a sponsor for the show because I'm a subscriber also. And um, just real quick, not before, and then I'm done. But what the other book everyone needs to read is Big Fat Surprise by Nina Teicholtz. Uh She's involved now with trying to get the government to redo the food pyramid. She has a great newsletter, but read that book because that lays out all the, all the evidence and information that's been around since the 50s that saturated fat is not the problem.
Say that again, Sal. Big fat surprise by who? Nina Teicholtz. It's spelled T-E-I-C-H-L-O. I'm sorry, H-O-L-T-Z, I believe. But if you go big fat surprise, you won't. You can find that any place. We'll put that in our show notes for our audience too, as well as Sacred Cow and Good Ranchers. Uh, Kevin, let's move on to you now. Uh, we've, we've talked over the weeks about, I guess, a, a, a reoccurring theme is lowering expectations uh, around whether it's trickle down from Major League Baseball all the way down to youth baseball. And the phrase that got sent to me on email was dysfunctional optimism. You know, don't worry, be happy. If they, flip, if they flip the bats, you know, hey, let the kids play. If they, you know, get, you know, in the paper mache bracket, they get their rings, God bless them, let them get them. But talk a little bit about how that trickle down happens. We, we're seeing it with strikeouts and defense doesn't matter and pass balls in major leagues. Talk about what you're seeing out there from top to bottom with this lowering of expectations for our players. Well, first of all, I want to endorse uh, Sal's comments because if you look at Sal, he looks like he's about uh, 35 years old and he's pretty old. You know, so, uh, so, so <laughs> that's quite an endorsement. Thank you. Yes. It, yeah, it, it, it works. And, uh, you know, this guy knows more about health and staying healthy uh, than, than anybody I know. Yeah, I think what's going on in baseball is, um, you know, we've seen it uh, here and there and everywhere. Um, you go to a game, they get it starts when you're young. You know, it, it, it's really. I hate to bang on parents, but the parents were out of control. You know, kids are eating like, you know, they're eating hot dogs, they're eating candy and, game, and you know, chips during a game. They're doing this, they're doing that. Everybody gets a gut. You know, I'm going to really, this may piss off some people, but you know what? Even in T-ball, I watch, I watch, this is where it all starts. I watch my granddaughter, uh, granddaughters play softball and two of them are up a little bit older, nine and ten. Uh, one's in the youngest level, and she was really into playing first base, man, and that's that's the position to play because a lot of balls could hit that way. So she's she's running over because she, you know how it is with the youngest. The youngest always picks up from the oldest, so they're usually a, l- a little more intense. And uh, she's running left and right, getting balls and beating the runner to first base. And I'm at the game, you know, I'm just the old, you know, the grandfather at the game, and she's getting these guys out one, two, and three. And you're letting them stay in the base. What the hell's going on? It's baseball. You're not safe when you're tagged out. When when the when the fielder beats you to the bag with the ball or 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 their body, but it starts there. This whole, God forbid, somebody fails and they 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 falter. You know what? That's what's wrong across the board now in sports. And now I want to I want to swing it forward. Because we all see it with the, the – and I don't get over – the bat flips don't bother me as much as anybody else because half the times the kids that do it, they're just proving what jackasses they are, you know, and and, and, and that's just – that's them. Look, the jackass just flipped the bat. Okay, great. Okay, move on. But, um, but the thing that I've noticed, and I want to commend the Yankees here, the Yankees have kind of set a bar uh, much higher this year. You know, you don't see them celebrating little things, you know. They, they they celebrate team stuff and things like that. But, you know, they're winning games and they got the, the eye and the prize. And will they get there? We don't know. But the point is the Yankees have raised the bar across the board. That's why I expect them to make a trade, too, before the trade deadline. Because, you know, I've uh, been around Cash for a long time and he loves to uh, tink, tinker with these things. So the Yankees, teams should follow the Yankees. And what they're doing, I know they have all the money. I know this, I know that. But if you put money into your team, the fans are going to come out. 
I watched a little bit I, 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 the Kansas City game yesterday. And I forget who they were playing. They were playing another crappy team. Nobody in the stands. And it was a day-night doubleheader split split crowd. So they couldn't even put together a doubleheader for the fans to, uh, you know, enjoy two games because D- our team stinks. The team we're playing stinks. So uh, here's some – enjoy 18 innings for the price of uh, nine innings. And maybe you get a free ghost runner here and there too. We'll throw that in. So – so across the board, most teams are really aiming low. The Yankees aren't. And for them, I want to commend them. And if you're running any kind of program, and this fits much more in our scouts uh, section with Paul, but if you're running any kind of program, start demanding excellence. And you know what? If the kids can't handle it, if the parents can't handle it, go find another kid. I mean, I coached many years through the years. If a kid didn't want to deal with the program, and you know what I find out? Because I'm older now, things happen. We had one kid, I'm not going to mention the name, but he was a little bit different, you know. He was a pitcher. We, we, we found him in our travels, and he, he came to our team. Nice kid. He was a little, little, little rambunctious. But we hung with him. We demanded certain things from him. One of the, day, uh, one of the funny things was we got to talk to him one time. We wanted him to walk a kid, you know, uh, in a situation where we're going to – it's like a championship game or something. Well, hey, this guy, walk him. Let's go. He goes, Coach, why can't I just hit him? And uh, so, so that was his mindset. So my point is, we, we worked with him. We made him more of a team player. You know, that kid's a doctor now. So it's pretty interesting. So demand excellence from your kids and see where it goes. Yeah, and, uh, and we're seeing a lot of that in Major League Baseball now. Where And, and Bull, you can probably attest to this more than any of us. But, you know, we're, we're you know, it's, it's no longer, it's, it's you know, 0-2 counts. I think Mark talked about it yesterday where pitchers are getting hit more and more on the 0-2 counts. Batters are striking out more. Uh, defense, eh, we don't worry about it as much. Catchers at eh, pass balls, so what? Um, how, how have we gotten to this point? Well, I think Kevin made a great point early on that it does start in youth baseball. Um, <clears throat> I ran a uh, scout team with a group of kids, and uh, a lot of kids didn't want to play in our programs because they be, because they couldn't do whatever they wanted to do. Um, but we demanded the kids to run off it on the field. We demanded the kids to be on time and show up to practice and work hard. We demanded the kids to keep the dugout clean, to respect the field and take care of it after you get done using it on our home field. We demanded uh, to be respectful of umpires and coaches and other team you're playing against. And the sad thing was, is as I did this program, I would look across the field and there would be some very talented kids that people look the other way. And when you look the other way, bad behavior becomes acceptable and it just continues to grow. And in baseball, we call it you know, the entitlement group, you know, the top perfect game players every year, the ones that go to USA Baseball. By the time they get to us, no one has ever told them, hey, you can't do that. And when you tell them that, they're in shock. And you have people that are afraid to tell them that. And, you know, there was an old Italian saying, my, my mom used to say, those who care about you will tell you when your face is dirty to clean it. And we've gotten to that, and that's what happened. And Mark talked in depth about his coach, John Scalinas, and the 17 inches. As a society, we keep lowering the bar, and we look the other way at things that 
that aren't right. We got to have the courage to speak up. So, Shall you want to add to that? Well, just, uh, yeah, real quick on, on, on the something uh, Bull said, and again, it's lacrosse, but there was a player who showed up at an Ohio State prospect camp, never played club, was homeschooled, never played club, never was on the radar, and wound up getting a Division One scholarship because he was talented and he worked hard and he didn't need somebody, you know, blowing smoke up his rear end and you know, taking his parents to the cleaners. So, you know, there's other ways out there and, and, and you got to, we've talked about it off, off uh, line. You got to protect your, the gift that your kids have. Yeah, no, I like those. One of the phrases I use with my children, I'll use them with the team. Um, you know, my job as a parent or as a coach, and you guys can attest to this cause you're, you're all both. We create a bar, a level of standards. And my job is to never let that bar drop. And a phrase I often use to them is when they see me get agitated, they see me raise that voice a little bit or get a little more stern and, and demand that. The, the phrase I use is when my expectations have exceeded yours, that's a problem. And that's when you're going to see me get agitated. But yeah, the phrase you'll hear, we have t-shirts with it now, you know, never let the bar drop. And that's, that's I think, what you're all saying right here. And Dave, let, let, let's make it clear, too, that in my travels, and again, I've been doing this for a long time and seen a lot of things. Most of these guys want direction. Yeah. They want they want to be told, okay, that's I got to clean it up a little bit. And and uh, the ones who don't do it, you you see them in the majors. They go from team to team with all kinds of potential, you know. And and like Hubie Brown told me many decades ago, potential will get you fired. So so these players, I think most of these players are actually crying out for some discipline, leadership. You don't think. How about this? You don't think pick any player that's pretty good, but maybe he's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit half cocked and going in his own way. You don't think any of those guys wouldn't love to play with Aaron Judge? Aaron Judge does it right. Aaron Judge is a leader. He plays hard. He, he you know, he gives 100% every time and he doesn't cause trouble for the most, you know, I, I can't think of any trouble he's caused. So players want to play with teammates like that. They want to play with a Rizzo. And if they don't want to play with those guys, if they can't handle it, maybe they get traded. Maybe they get traded to the Cubs or somewhere else where they look the other way a little bit nowadays. I agree. I think deep down people want that. The kids want to be – they don't want to waste their time. They want to go there. They want to be demanded from. They want to be disciplined. Not the mean, but there's a fine line. But no, I, I agree with you 110%, Kevin, on that. Bolt, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, I – you know, from a – from a coaching standpoint, uh, I agree a hundred percent. And as a coach, be authentic and genuine and you care about your players and you will help them. They will open up and there'll be a, 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 a level of trust. Once you have that level of trust and they know you're on their side, they're going to listen to you and they're going to get better and they're going to work hard for you. Um, that all that stuff is just so important. And, um, you know, I will say out of that grouping of kids that I ran that program with in a small state of Delaware, I had about 13 kids and two of them ended up getting drafted. Um, and I think 10 of them played college baseball. So, uh, we had one kid who was with us for the five years that we did the program that didn't go on, but he's been successful in his life. And that's probably the most important thing. 
So it is, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And just to add one more before we move on is, you know, when, when you ask players, I think the old adage used to be, you know, great players want to be coached. And I agree to a point. I just think they want to be told the truth. I think they want to be held accountable. And, you know, I don't think anybody will look you in the face and say that's not the case as a player. So um, that's great points, guys. Uh, Bull, we'll move on to you now. We had Mark Wiley on yesterday, obviously a great uh, mentor to you, both on and off the field. We shared some funny stories, uh, some off the air that we, we didn't we didn't get on the air, but we'll get him back to tell those stories. But talk about some of your mentors, including Mark, that gave you some good advice, not just in pitching, but um, as, a, as an athlete, but also as a man. Yeah, I, I've, I've been so fortunate and blessed. And, um, you know, another old Italian adage my mom told me is God gave you two ears and one mouth. So you listen twice as much as you talk. And, uh, and when I got into sports, I listened. I listened to coaches. Um, I went to a high school in South Jersey, Pennsylvania High School, that at one point had eight players playing in the NFL out of our football program. So I was blessed to have unbelievable football coach who was maybe one of the most impactful coaches I had in any sport and anything in my life to make me accountable to do my job every day as a quarterback, um, to come out and work my butt off and get better every day and be a leader and do all those things that, that I carried into professional baseball. And then playing in the Orioles system, having Cal Ripken Sr. and Earl Weaver and Ray Miller and uh, uh, Al Widmar. And then Mark Wiley came in as a player and then ended up being my manager and then hired me as a, uh, a minor league pitching coordinator to be a pitching coach and mentored me through that. Um, working in the Cleveland Indian system, working with guys like Charlie Manuel and Dan O'Dowd and uh, Johnny Goral, who's a little known person, but he was probably one of the most instrumental people in building what Cleveland built. Uh, he was the minor league field coordinator when they built the team that won the American League Central, what, eight or nine years in a row. Uh, just very fortunate for, for, for that. Uh, being a young coach in instructional league and sharing with the St. Louis Cardinals and listening to Ted Simmons and George Kissel and uh, Clarence Jones and Hub Kittle and people like that talk about baseball. Uh, being a young scout, listening to Jim Fergosi Sr., who talk about scouting, uh, working for the Marlins for uh, Gary Hughes. Uh, he hired master scouts. We had Bertie Tebbets uh, on our scouting staff. We had uh, Lou Fitzgerald, Charlie Silvera, who backed up, was the backup catcher for Yogi Berra. Uh, we had these, these unbelievable people of wealth and knowledge to just sit and listen and learn. Uh, so I've been blessed to have all that. What uh, we, we talked a little bit with Mark off the air about some of his pitching philosophies, getting specific about pitching. What was his basis, his foundation for you guys with pitching? You know, one, one of the biggest thing, um, and when I got hired, uh, Ray Miller uh, was my first pitching coach. He told me, he said, you know, build, build a relationship of trust with your pitchers. You understand pitching, you understand mechanics, and you'll be able to help them. 
and Mark fed on that. Uh, Mark was a fundamentalist as far as um, having balance, rhythm, and timing as a pitcher. Uh, most essential thing is to be able to, to build a foundation of, of a good delivery, commanding your fastball first, and then and you add. You add you, you add components. Then you go to a changeup that you can throw for strikes. Then then you add a breaking ball that becomes a strike pitch. Then you add a breaking ball that becomes a two strike pitch. And then you 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 become a learner. You become an uh, observer of hitters and hitters tendencies and all those things. You know, Mark was just so good at covering everything that we needed to bring to our players to make them successful and then put them in a position to be successful. Yeah, kind of like what uh, Max Scherzer did to the Braves last night. Yeah, he went right after him last night. And, and he mixed it up, and he read their swings, and all the things that Bull was just talking about. Now, Scherzer's elite talent, but he puts in elite work, and that's what makes him who he is. And uh, so it's not just – you know, and I think Mark said it yesterday, too. The, you know, he watches some games now, and he sees these pitchers maybe throw the same pitch four times in a row. Start, yeah. thinking, start thinking for you. Don't be a robot out there. Start thinking for yourself. No, there's more more nights than not do I go, wow, why did he throw that pitch? You know, like like there's no read of the swing or the approach or – where the where the count has just taken them, and then you find out that it was scripted by someone who's never pitched, who looked at data, and they did that at one o'clock in the afternoon for that night's game. So it's not happening in the moment, and that's not a good thing to happen. Those are great points, and Kevin, you've been around the game longer than any of us. Uh, who are some of the guys similar to Mark Wiley? That, that you would say embody some of these points that, that Bulls bring about? Yeah, well, there's a million, you know, Mark, there's a, there's a million of those guys that really stood, understood the game and pitched uh, and hit too. I'll go back to when I, I was lucky enough when I covered the Padres, Merv Rettman was the hitting coach, and Merv was a tremendous hitting coach, came out of the Orioles system, I believe, so Bull would be aware of that. And then Pat Dobson was the pitching coach. So right then and there, Day one of beat writing for the uh, San Diego Union, I'm, I'm learning stuff every day, and we haven't gotten a Tony Gwynn, you know, and things like that. But all the coaches back then, Amos Otis, uh, right on through, even through the years, uh, you know, um, I think a guy who's totally underrated and is off the radar, um, Gary Tuck was a tremendous catching instructor. And I don't know what, what Gary's doing now. I'm going to try to reach out to him at some point. But he was with, you know, he was with the Yankees and the Red Sox through the years when, when their catching got really good, and uh, he could work with anybody. So there's a lot of, lot of, lot of great coaches through the years, uh, if they're allowed to coach. And I think uh, Bull hit on a great point. It drives me absolutely insane. These games are scripted. Uh, again, I'm going back to Scherzer. He's not scripting it. You know, he's figuring it out. He's seeing. You know, um, I was watching. Um, I was watching a game yesterday, too, and the pitcher, the, the hitter couldn't handle the fastball. He threw him a curveball. He, he fouled down the left field line, right-handed hitter. He was on it. And what does he do? He throws him the same curveball, and it becomes a, like an RBI double. They, they're, they're just, I hate to use a phrase, but they're dumb, dummies. 
think for yourself, pitching for dummies, you know, maybe that's the, the book to write. And uh, think for yourself, read the swings. Another good, you know, and then you're lucky if you get players who become instructors too, who aren't coaches. Like, but I'll give you an example. And you've seen it with our conversations here and there with him, but Mike Piazza. Piazza really studied the game and studied catching. It drives him absolutely insane now to watch the catchers on one knee. And, and he always says, get down to the bullpen, do some bullpens, get some ball, you know, have these pitchers throw you dirt balls and, and learn how to block pitches. But all that's out the window and goes back to our original point of, you know, the bar has been lowered. Um, an infielder I know said that his team would rather have uh, – they don't want the double play as much as they want to get the out. So that's why they don't care if they're out of place. That's another thing that's happening. Infielders are so out of place now for double plays. Um, I saw it yesterday watching the Braves game. They had an easy double play except they had Swanson played somewhere crazy and he had to come on a different angle and kick the bag and he had to throw off balance. Uh that's why we see, uh, we'll talk about this maybe later, but that's why we see so many, uh, you know, we're seeing more and more collisions now because infielders are coming from nowhere and the outfielders haven't figured out where they're coming from. So, again, the, let the instructors instruct. Um, that's not happening as much now, and they're not working at it. It's really that simple. Um, so it's it's uh, it's a combination of a lot of great instructors out there. I've been uh, – Johnny Sane – you know, Jack McKean told me about him. He was lucky enough to have Johnny Sane as a pitching coach, and he picked up a lot of his. Johnny Sane is probably, I would say, the, uh, the, the, the the master of the modern-day pitcher. A lot of things go back to Johnny Sane. Uh, Leo Mazzoni followed him, I believe, in Atlanta. That's when they had the staff, and they, they threw a lot. They did those things. So, yeah, they're all out there. Just find them. Yeah. yeah I think you're right. We, we've got the great coaches. We're not using them, though, right now. Uh, Sal or Bull, you guys wanted to both add. Well, real quick, just to piggyback, you know, you talk about the great coaches you had uh, to learn from. When I was in high school in the 70s, my baseball coach, my high school baseball baseball coach was in the Yankees farm system, was actually a, a shortstop behind Phil Rizzuto at one point. Uh, there were several other coaches in our conference who had minor league experience, who played baseball at a time where the things you guys have all talked about are necessary to be done, and everybody did those things. And the level of play was great because we all learned from guys that learned that. What you're getting now, and I see this in my field of performance, which is garbage, you have young guys use learning garbage from guys who are successful because they're at a place that could do almost anything and they'll still be successful. Uh, same thing, these good coaches are f far and few between now, or at least it's harder now because so much has gotten off the rails with how things are taught. Yeah. yeah, just a, f a few things. Um, Gary Tuck, not only before he went to the Yankees and helped them and the Red Sox and helped them, he was Cleveland's catching uh, head catching instructor who helped Sandy Alomar and uh, two minor league catchers who ended up having really good big league careers with just – you know, average average ability, Jesse Levis and Kelly Stinnett, because he was one of the best teachers I've ever been around for catchers to be a complete catcher, take charge of the game. And he told the, the catcher that the pitcher should not have an L next to his name. It should be you. 
it's your fault if if the pitcher does not win because he has three or four pitches that you can get him through games. But he was really good. And then uh, anecdotally about living in the moment and having a feel for things, I was sitting with Jim Palmer in spring training about four or five years ago, and he was going through the 1980 um, Kansas City Royals lineup, how he pitched them. Uh, Amos Otis, Cookie Rojas, Freddie Patek, George Brett, and then you have, um, the big first baseman, John Mayberry, and this one and that one, and you had to make sure you held here. And, you know, you couldn't throw uh, curveballs uh, when you were ahead in counts because Otis would steal bases. And, and, like, he went through everything. And I remember how I pitched every good hitter I ever faced. And I said, Jim, go downstairs and ask yesterday's starter, how he pitched the other team. And he did, and the guy couldn't remember how he pitched the other team. But Jim Palmer, you know, in 2014 or 15 or 16, could remember how he pitched the 1980 Kansas City Royals. Nice. And, and then, you know, the other thing Sal just talked about, uh, Cal Ripken Sr. used to tell us all the time, go home. And if you have an opportunity to do a clinic, a uh, camp, uh, go help a high school or college or help a young kid keep, and he used the term pay it forward. This is in 1977 before the movie pay it forward came out, wow. pay it forward, teach, teach people how to play the game the right way. And that grows the game of baseball. And that's why his son got into youth baseball. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, that's you know who let the dogs out. But that's anyway, another uh, phrase, right? Yeah, well, and actually, that's a story someday I'll tell about uh, Todd Frazier. But I'm going to tell a quick story on Pat Dobson. Uh, Pat Dobson was just such a great um, instructor. But the great thing about Pat Dobson was he was so honest, and that, I think we talked about honesty in coaches early, earlier. But um, Dobber, one day Eric Shaw was Eric Shaw. Eric had all the talent in the world, but would outthink himself. Uh, but just do stuff, you know. You remember everybody remembers Shao sitting on the mound after the rose hit. But he had a lot of talent. Was a nice guy, but he came up with some wacky excuse why he didn't succeed that day. So back then, you could go talk to the coaches right after games. That's another thing. The poor media now, you never see a pitching coach after a game to explain things. They don't allow them to be found. So that, that's another bad thing, and where uh, invariably the the reader loses out. But back then, the pitching coaches were right there, so. We went over to Dobson and said, you know, Eric, and I forget what Eric's BS excuse was, but I said, <clears throat> Eric said this <clears throat> yesterday, uh, I mean today, that's why he struggled. And he goes, well, the real reason, the real reason he struggled is because the moons of Remulac were not aligned properly. So that's, that's uh, you know, so he let him have it right then and there. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Well, yeah. So we'll move on to our last question. Then I want to get to what's what's uh, in Kevin's head as he's watching baseball over the last week or so. Uh, question I got asked, and I'll keep it short for our listener. And I'll promise our listener, I have a little pamphlet on this somewhere in the house. I'll send it to you, and I'll post some of it online. But I, I have a young man just got his first head coaching job, Division Division Three Community College, right out of college. So he's a year removed from playing, and he said, "What do I do?" And I kind of laughed. I was like, "Geez, I'm glad that question wasn't asked on the interview." for the job. But uh, real quick for, for our listener that just got his first head coaching job, 
you, hit, you heard a theme throughout this show. I think you want to sit down with all the important people in your program. That's not just the players and the assistants, but all the people around it, the peripheral, the, the secretaries, the custodial workers, um, anybody on campus, admissions, um, you know, the band, if you've got it, the, whoever you've got around your program, start sharing the importance of mutual respect, trust, and communication, uh, because you're going to be learning quite a bit uh, on those first 30 days. Uh, just emphasize to the players and the assistants that your priorities are them. The door is always open. Uh, stress the importance of them working in the classroom. And even let them know, I mean, I had a strict standard. My first Division One head coaching job, it was if you miss a class, you miss a game. You do it twice, you find a new program. And set those bars high for them, and, and they'll respond to it. And it'll always be your best player that breaks in. And if you can't discipline your best player, you're going to be in trouble uh, for, throughout your career. And that whole, uh, what was it, the Hebe Brown said, potential will get you fired. It should be a four-letter word, so be careful of that. Um, you know, identify their concerns, you know, what, what happened with the program in the past. Uh, what's going to change and stay strict with that, uh, with them and discuss them every day. And I think you want to meet with all the people around you, academics, promotions, uh, figure out where your recruiting is going to come from. That, and that pipeline is going to be important. Uh, get out in your local community and meet people in your local community in and out of sports. Those are going to be your supporters. Those are going to be your fans and never go in there asking for anything, go in there and figure out what they need, find three or four things they need and be that guy that helps them get things they need. And at the end, they'll be your best friends when you go there and start just as, as Kevin mentioned and, and Bull and Sal start some camps for your community. Uh, make the, the kids in your community better. Um, and, and they'll be loyal to your program as well and put your stuff out there. Gosh, get, uh, you know, get shirts, get, you know, souvenir bats, whatever it may be, have whatever your community colleges have it on everything in that community and be the guy, be the Pied Piper in that community. You'll be your own public relations guy. And then if you're lucky enough to have somebody like Sal around, you know, find a trainer, find a strength coach, find somebody that is in tune with baseball uh, nutrition and baseball strength. And if they're not, then then don't overcomplicate it. Call Sal and uh, we'll, we'll get you some advice quick from him. But I will send our listener uh, a little pamphlet I've got somewhere in my house. First 30 days in the job. I carried it everywhere. I've passed it out probably a thousand times and use it as your Bible. What doesn't work, gosh, you can send me a bad email and tell me and blame it on me. So uh, that's, that's my thoughts for, for that. But keep it about mutual respect. Keep it about communication and keep that bar high for those guys and they'll respond. Great advice. Good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, um, Kevin, what's been on your mind? We'll, we'll move into the cl- uh, the dugout right now. I know we've had a, a long time in the clubhouse. This week in baseball now, you've been, you, you you tend to have a keen eye of, you know, what what's on the what's on the pulse of baseball. What are you seeing this week? Pop-ups are on my mind. Um, seeing some pop-ups that are just ridiculously uh, – not caught. I mean, I watched the the Red Sox Yankees. Uh, um, you know, pop up to first base. Cadero overran it by six feet. Uh, pop up to right field. They're playing a royal infielder in the outfield, and he and he um, he uh, he never sees it, and it becomes a triple. Uh, he scores a couple runs. I'm watching. I'm watching another game and. Um, there's a pop-up to the catcher with two outs, uh, Moreno, the catcher, and I, and uh, this was in the uh, Seattle game, and and the ball drops five feet in front of home plate. It, it, he was at, uh, on Toronto, and the first baseman and the third baseman never called him off. They could see he was in trouble. So what that tells me is that they're not working on pop-ups, just like they're not working on anything anymore. So my point is, how can you sell the game as the greatest game in the world with the greatest athletes in the world 
when you don't even practice things anymore. It's a joke. I, a part of practice used to always be infield outfield was that oh, every team always had a good coach, a good fungal hitting coach who could shoot these pop-ups straight high. And not just in spring training. Don't, don't fall for that BS like, oh, we worked on it in spring training. No, you got all year to work on it. And you need to, you need to dust it off sometimes. So I'm seeing so many pop-ups fall. And that, that shows me where the game is uh, defensively and, and what's going on with the game. Paul, you had something on that. Yeah, those are such great points, Kevin. And uh, it's funny, I had this conversation with a veteran scout, Louis Medina, that works for the Royals. He was an Indians minor league guy uh, when Mark and I were there. Um, longtime scout, and we were talking about, okay, so there were – Okay, so everybody's hitting uphill and trying to hit the ball in the air. So there's more pop-ups and strikeouts, yet no outfielders take balls off the bat. Nobody hits them any fungos because guys can't hit fungos. They do use a machine occasionally, but they don't have the same spin as the ball coming off the bat. And you watch pop-ups get dropped all the time. So, okay, if the ball's going to be hit in the air, Shouldn't we be working on catching pop-ups? And yet we don't see anyone work on catching pop-ups. That's a logical point. <laughs> and same thing with catching, right? we got a lot of strikeouts, but our catchers are worse than ever right now is yeah. their duties. Let, yeah. me, let me just add one other thing to that. If I was still covering uh, on a daily basis, when and, and I respect the managers, but say Alex Corey says, you know, uh, that's going to happen. I hold their feet to the fire, so I'll, I would ask, and this, I would love to see media start asking this because after post games, you get you get the interviews from the uh, you know the local uh, TV uh, person who's in the clubhouse. But I'd say, when was the last time you guys worked on pop ups? And and start putting these people. And if and if the uh, if the manager basically tells you we don't work on them, they don't want us to work on them, then you got yourself a pretty good story. Yeah, oh, great point. Yeah, we wanted to add something. Uh, I, I want to say I think Kevin and Bull are being tough on these guys. I, I think they've had sore necks, and it's hard to look up in the air for pop-ups. So they probably have cut back on that because their necks have been sore. <laughs> Just like running bases, you know. Don't yeah, you got it. That's, That's beautiful. <laughs> we got to get uh, somebody out there asking the tough questions so we can get this stuff out in the public. But I'm glad we're bringing it up on this show, and that's what this show is about. Um, guys, great, great episode. Again, we appreciate uh, the audience. I know appreciates uh, you guys here and all the insights you give and in, in your specific field. And then collectively, it's just genius. Uh, we all love it. Um, make sure you guys follow us uh, on Twitter. Make sure you go to Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and, and iHeartRadio and follow Coach and Kernan. Subscribe, like us, give us, give us five stars. Also, make sure you're reading Kevin on Ball Nine. And following him on Twitter, AMBS underscore Kernan. Great article with Jack McKeon, Jim Cock. Can't wait to see what's up next this weekend for you. Um, guys, great show, and uh, we'll, we'll catch you next week. Take care.